Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. In this episode, you're going to meet Barbara Giddings and Kay Lahusen. For those of you who got to know Barbara and Kay last season, you're going to get to know them a little better. For those of you who are new to this dynamic duo, I encourage you to go back and listen to their first episode, where you'll hear how these happy warriors, self-described gay fanatics and life partners, met and got their start in the early homophile movement of the 1950s and 60s. This episode picks up after the 1969 Stonewall Uprising, which lit the match that transformed the small-scale homophile movement into a national gay liberation campaign. Within a very short time, the early movement organizations and activists faded into history as younger, more militant LGBTQ people picked up the ball and ran with it. But anyone who knew Barbara and Kay would know they'd never go quietly into the night. And after first having to defend themselves as legitimate members of the movement at a public meeting of the Newborn Gay Liberation Front organization, they got down to business and focused on the things that interested them. And lucky for us, they brought all their passion, creativity, humor, and valuable experience with them. Barbara focused on her interest in books and the American Library Association. For Barbara, like almost everyone I interviewed, books were the only place where LGBTQ people could find themselves. Kay photographed the revolution and co-authored a book called The Gay Crusaders. And together they worked with Frank Kameny to demolish the belief that homosexuals were by nature mentally ill. It's a battle that ended when the American Psychiatric Association voted in 1973 to remove homosexuality from its list of mental illnesses in the DSM. That's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the mental health profession's bible for deciding what is and what is not mental illness. So we're back in Barbara and Kay's cozy house in Philadelphia. The microphone is still clipped to Barbara's blouse. But Kay can't sit still. So I give up trying to keep her tethered to the tape recorder. From the kitchen, she hears everything and joins the conversation when she's got something to add. Giddings Tobin, tape two, side one. I am not a librarian. That's important, but I've always had a great respect, a profound respect for the literature. 
and for what it says and doesn't say about us and for how it makes us feel about ourselves and how it makes other people feel about us. Because when I first wanted to find out what it meant to be gay, after I first put the label on myself, uh, being a reasonably well-educated uh, girl, I thought, oh well, I, I'll go to the library. <laughs> Famous last words. I went to the library and I went to the, another library and yet another. And I found very little information and most of it was, was uh, false. It rang false. Even if I knew it was me they were talking about, it didn't ring true. Uh, nothing was about, there was nothing about love. And uh, it, it was also strange. Clinical. Clinical sounding. Very clinical. And then later I found the novels of homosexuality and they made me feel a lot better because even though these were fictional characters, they, they were more like real people. And I started collecting gay books. Uh, there were no gay bookstores then. I went to regular bookstore, used bookstores and searched for gay titles. Anyway, I heard by accident in 1970, 1970 that a gay group had formed in the American Library Association. You were doing the broadcast for WBAI. I was doing New gay news uh, once a week, 15 minutes worth of gay news on WBAI in New York. And one day in the uh, in our box at the station was a little notice saying that a group of gays had formed in the American Library Association and they were meeting in New York and were looking for others to join them. Books, libraries, that rang bells for me. So I went to a meeting of the group and I was welcomed. And they were planning a massive, one of those, you know, big bibliographies, everything ever written about the subject. But that, of course, was going to take some time. And what they needed was a short, manageable list of the most positive materials mm. that could be distributed at the next small midwinter conference of the ALA. Eric, the important point is that the positive materials could all be all gotten on, on one, one legal size flyer. Letter size, yes. Letter size. Letter one size. One side. Was that but, it? I found out, I, I can't remember. It, it happened sure. that I knew, at that point, I knew as much about the existing literature as anyone else in the group, even though I was not a librarian, just for my reading. So I helped put together that first group, and I believe it had 32 entries, and it all fit on one letter size <laughs> sheet, you know, two sides. A, a midwinter meeting that year was in Los Angeles, and I couldn't afford to go, but I sent the bibliography out. Others did the leafleting, and then the next big annual meeting was to be in Dallas. 1971, and um, I did travel to Dallas for that and took part in the activities of the group. Well, we had a lot. We gave the first Gay Book Award. Um, we even got some money from our parent group in the ALA, uh, the Social Responsibilities Roundtable, to bring the author for, to pay for her airfare to come to Dallas to accept the award in person. What was the book? Um, it was then called Patience and Sarah. Mm -hmm. Well, no, it was retitled Patience and Sarah. It was then called um, A Place of a place Our Own. For us, a or? Place for Us. I don't know. That was the original title, Isabel Miller, but that's actually the name of Alma Routsong. Anyway, we had a talk by Michael McConnell, a gay librarian who had lost his job when he was public about being gay. He'd actually been hired for the job, and then they found out that he and his lover had applied for a marriage license, and they suddenly off. And we had a pair of talks under the charming title Sex and the Single Cataloger, New Thoughts on Some Unthinkable Subjects, which was about the funny subject headings that gay materials are classified under. And we had uh, a, an expanded edition of the gay bibliography, which had first been done six months before, uh, for handout. Legal this time, time, and this time it had a big gay is good logo at the head. 
and this time it was expanded to a legal size sheet. And all of these are clearly related to books and libraries, right? And we not only would we leaflet, we'd plaster them up in elevators and in, yes. in the elevator waiting uh, corridors and uh, during put the convention. Them, yeah, we'd during put them the convention, all around. Well, we had all very these... aggressive with them. They would say, "Oh, there are those gay task force people." Again. We <laughs> <laughs> all of these things didn't quite draw the attention that they deserved. You, the, all these professional interest activities didn't draw the professional interest that we thought they would. So we did one thing that was not at all connected with libraries, and it really made them sit up and take notice. That was our gay kissing booth. We had the first ever gay kissing booth. At the ALA convention? At the ALA convention. In the convention what happened hall. was we, well, we decided to bypass books and show gay love live. So we called it Hug a Homosexual. <laughs> and we stripped it down to the bare gray curtains, and we had a sign up, men only at one end and women only at the other, and we stationed ourselves, same sex all four kisses. of us, under the signs to give free, mind you, free same-sex <laughs> kisses and hugs. Well, let me tell you, the aisles were jammed, but nobody came into the booth. <laughs> and Life Magazine was there. Life that Magazine was the photographer part. was there. Two D Dallas television stations had sent camera crews. <laughs> Right, and the and lights I think people were going were rather intimidated. Yes, the lights were on, and all these people jammed in the aisles, craning their necks to see the action, but nobody wanted to take part. So we did the action. We kissed and embraced each other for two hours. We handed out copies of the bibliography. <laughs> we called out encouragement. We kissed and hugged each other some more. Alma Routsong was an absolute peach. She and I were on the female end, and a couple of the men were on the other, and we did all this ourselves. We had... That really put so us on the map. So there we were on the 6 o'clock news and the library and people again, were livid. They said, we no. have all these famous authors here and all they cover is this kissing booth. <laughs> they put us on the 6 o'clock news. They put us again on the 11 o'clock news and again the next morning. This was news. It was wonderful. And it really, it, our spirits soared because we, you know, really the booth also had uh, a message that was useful in any arena. And that is that gay people are not willing anymore to be subject to a special double standard. If we, we, are, we should have the same right to express our affection publicly as heterosexuals have. No more, but no less. This was very bold. For 1971, mm -hmm. you better believe it, it was <laughs> right. bold. Revolutionary. We, we thought it was marvelous. It was really, it was a thrill and the reaction. Oh, they wrote about us in the library press for the next six months. We couldn't have asked for better publicity, free publicity. I'll show you a photograph that you're probably familiar with. Oh, this is Dr. Anonymous at the American Psychiatric Association. I took that picture. That's Kay's picture. That's yes, mine. that's Kay's photo. <laughs> I'll show it to you from my file upstairs. Well, at the left uh, is myself, Barbara Gittings. Yeah. Next to me is Franklin Kameny. And we were the two the two non-psychiatrist gay panelists. What was, this, what was this event that you were speaking This was the American yes. Psychiatric Association's annual conference. This was in May of 1972. I was shooting for a gay newspaper at the time, <clears throat> and um, that now, appeared in there. Now, Frank and I, the story behind this is that Frank and I had been asked to be on a panel at the 1972 yeah. conference. And Kay said, this was all Kay's doing, she said, well, look, um, oh, yes, there were to be a couple of psychiatrists. I think... Judd Marmer was one of them. And she said, look, you have psychiatrists who are not gay on the panel, and you have 
gays who are not psychiatrists on the panel. But what you're lacking on the panel is gay psychiatrists, those who are both. Mm -hmm. And she said, why don't we try to get a gay psychiatrist? Well, uh, the moderator was perfectly agreeable, but he said, you, you know, find somebody for me. And I made a number of calls to some of the people that I had made some contacts with, and nobody yet, nobody yet was quite willing to be that public. Why? What, what would have happened if someone? They was that feared. Public? They feared uh, a damage to their careers. Mm -hmm. But finally, I talked with this one man who said, "Well, I will do it, provided I am allowed to wear a wig and a mask and use a distort microphone." And that's what he did. And he came on the pat. He was billed in the in the program as Doctor H Anonymous. That was the way he wanted to be billed. And he was going to talk about what it was like to have to live in the closet because of career constraints mm. as a gay psychiatrist. It went off marvelously. The house was packed. Doctor H Anonymous came in Ryan through the back. Ray, but against it. He didn't want any yeah, but it went off. It went off. Ask. It went off. I know, but it went off so well that he had to admit afterwards it was a great gamble. It was a great gamble. Look at the smile on his face. I mean, after, <laughs> after all, it went off so well. Where, what were the other two? Psychiatry, friend or foe to homosexuals. A dialogue was the title. The title of the uh, of the panel, panel. that uh, had Frank and me and Dr. H Anonymous and Dr. Marmer. From, from 1967, when I made my first uh, public lecture to a, gay, uh, to a straight audience, and I had to deal constantly with people's conviction that we were sick simply because they had heard some psychiatrists say so, or they had heard a report of the infamous Bieber study, mm -hmm. that badly flawed study which, which didn't even get uh, 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 examined critically in the profession and which got ballyhooed to the public. And it's, that was the one that... Uh, promoted the idea that gay men become gay because of the absent, distant father and the all-encompassing mother. And you know that idea is, you've heard about oh, that I at least, that's time. still around. Well, that yes. came strictly out of the Bieber study. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was a really bad piece of work. And yet it had such impact and such control over our destinies. Once we were able to get rid of the sickness label, we could stop paying attention to the Biebers and the Haddons and uh, who was the other one? Uh, Van, well, Van den Haag was not a medical psychoanalyst. He, he was a, a, a non-medical psychoanalyst. Only half bad. He only said we had an arrestation of development. <laughs> right. Uh, but um, even the churches deferred to the shrink. Yes. Shout out to them. They abdicated totally. They didn't say we were immoral. They said we were sick. Oh, and now they say we're immoral. Right. Now we're immoral. But at least that's arguable. Right. Where is the, the problem with the sickness label is that that supposedly is scientific and not subject to dispute. And so those were what, some of the things you went after in your Yes, work. the sickness but issue was DOB, paramount. Some of the people wanted the uh, professionals, the psychiatrists and the psychologists, to, um, to change their minds and to uh, vindicate us. And so that was a big push and pull in itself among our own people. And, you know, it was Frank who said uh, that we have to proclaim that in the absence of valid evidence to the contrary, we're well. We're not sick. <laughs> and that the burden of proof rests on those who would call us sick. And then Florence Conrad of DOB said um, that uh, no one would listen to us. 
And Frank says, so what? If no one listens, we haven't, we haven't lost anything, right? If someone listens, we've gained something. And he said, even if it's only that gay person out in Iowa right. who feels encouraged by hearing somebody stand up and say this on our behalf, right. that's, a, that's, to the, that's to the good. Mm -hmm. When we did get, in, get a foot in the door in APA and started pushing in conjunction with those in their DSM committee who were ready to drop it, uh, it did move very fast. What kind of impact did the change have? The change in listing? It, I think. Do you recall when the vote Yes, began? yes. We had a wonderful headline in one of the Philadelphia papers 20 million homosexuals gain instant cure. <laughs> and a picture of me and uh, some little interview with me in the story. But it was basically about the vote. It was a front page story, and I was thrilled with it. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, exactly, we, got, we were cured overnight by a stroke of the pen just as originally we'd been made sick by probably a stroke of the pen. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the effects were not necessarily felt overnight, but mm -hmm. you could see that uh, by the end of the 70s, some six or seven years after the decision in APA, we were no longer putting so much energy into fighting the psychiatrists and the sickness label. And today it's hardly talked It's about. hardly talked about. No, now sure it's okay. You, I'd rather... I'd rather... <laughs> no, but I, I would... You can, you can argue with people, in a way, you can argue with people who say that you're immoral because you can say, look, there's so many kinds of morality. Mm -hmm. There are no absolutes. And you and I will agree on, on most things and we will disagree on this one, but you can't enforce your morality on me. The sickness label supposedly had the, the cachet of, of indisputable science, mm -hmm. which made it a lot harder to deal with in the, in the, with the general public. That's right. It was easy for people to say, oh, those people are sick. And now they had to come up with other reasons. And now they're coming out with more basic reasons. I don't like you. I don't like the way you live. I think you're immoral. I think you're rotten. Well, all of that is more honest than this nonsense about you're sick. Kay's photograph of the Dr. H. Anonymous panel at the American Psychiatric Association convention in 1972 is one of my all-time favorites from the movement. You can see it at makinggayhistory.com. There's Barbara Giddings and Frank Kameny looking at the camera and smiling broadly. Next to Frank is Dr. H. Anonymous in a face mask and a wig. And at the podium is Dr. Judd Marmer, a psychiatrist. You have to marvel at how Barbara and Frank, two civilians, got themselves to the center of one of the most pivotal and crucial debates about gay people. Were we sick or not? And they helped win the day. Talk about citizen heroes. They are role models for all of us, especially at a time in our nation's history where we are all called to action to defend all Americans against the forces of ignorance, fear, and tyranny. 44 years after the APA's vote, there are still people and organizations pushing the idea that homosexuals can be cured through conversion therapy. Barbara Giddings died on February 18, 2007. Kay lives outside Philadelphia in a retirement community. I have the pleasure of speaking with Kay every now and then, and the first thing she always says to me is, Hello, dear. What have you got for me? Kay can't be out on the front lines anymore but wants to know what's going on with us younger folks. If you'd like to get a message to Kay, write to me at hello at makinggayhistory.com and I'll be sure to get it to her. I know she'd be happy to hear from you. 
I've got a few people to thank for their work on this podcast. Executive producer Sarah Birmingham, co-producer and guardian angel Jenna Weiss-Berman, audio engineer Casey Holford, webmaster Jonathan Dozer-Ezel, head of research Zachary Seltzer, and our social media strategist Will Coley. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Before I go, I'd like to tell you about a new podcast from our friends at WNYC Studios. It's the Nancy Podcast, hosted by Tobin Lowe and Kathy Tu. As they say, everyone's a little bit gay. So give them a listen. You'll find them everywhere podcasts are available. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and the One Archives Foundation. Season two of this podcast is made possible with support from the Ford Foundation, which is on the front lines of social change worldwide. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to Making Gay History on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. So long until next time. <laughs>